Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and especially if you're joining with us online, if you're new with us, my name's Tim, and I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's, and it's my privilege to be preaching to you from 2 Samuel, chapters 2 to 4. So it's a really long passage today. Uh, it's more than 80 verses, trust me, I counted 83, right? Uh, so I will not be reading and explaining every single verse, that'll take too long. But thankfully, uh, we have with us a story, and it's a very riveting story, at least it was for me as I was reading through it, wow, very action-packed. So I'll be trying my best to be uh, telling, telling the story and explaining it in its context. Um, and by the way, when I say story, I mean a historical narrative, a record of accounts as things unfolded, events as it happened, and not fictional fairy tale. All right? So uh, hopefully, as we go through this story together, uh, God will have some insights for us in our life story. So let's begin with prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word and that you choose to reveal yourselves, yourself through the lives of your people. And even as today we look at a narrative of your people so long ago, we know, O oh Lord, that you are the same God who worked all of that for your good, for your glory. That no matter how messy it was, you are the same God who promises to work for the good of all who love you as well. We trust in your promises given to us in Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So as I was preparing to preach, I was, uh, this, this story, it reminded me of a time when I was playing a board game at my friend's house. Uh, I, I can't remember what's the name of it. Uh, it was kind of like Monopoly, except that there was much more um, uh, negotiating and, and, and diplomacy involved. In fact, it said in the instructions, right, feel free to backstab, cheat, and betray your friends. It's like, wow, what kind of game is this, right? And, and ultimately, there'd be only one winner that could win everything on the board. But you could choose two ways of playing it. You could choose to play dirty. You can cheat, steal, lie, betray, and be deceitful. deceitful. Or you can play fair. The first, of course, is, more, is faster and a more convenient way to win. But the second way is to take much longer, much harder, and lesser chances of winning, to be honest. And this betrayal, diplomacy, changing of allegiances, forming alliances, all these elements are in today's story. And before we continue, another key aspect to today's story is a single Hebrew word called hesed. Now, I use, I mean, I'm sorry that I'm going back to the Hebrew here because there's no English word that translates to it. And it's a key component to our story. This word hesed occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's one of the key characteristics of God. And even though it only appears three times in our passage today, uh, it's actually woven throughout. The word itself doesn't appear, but the concept is throughout. Now, in the ESV, usually you'll see hesed translated as steadfast love. There's a whole psalm in which it's repeated at every line. His steadfast love endures forever, right? But it's also translated as mercy, or in today's passage as well, once it's translated as loyalty. Now, the best way to explain hesed is that it is a love uh, involved in a promise-keeping, loyal kind of love that keeps its promise, even when uh, the, promise, the, per the person making the promise keeps it, even when there's no reward, keeps it for the sake of it, even when the person is being kept to cannot repay, that there's a faithfulness to it, there's an enduring faithfulness, steadfastness out of it, that even when the one receiving it doesn't deserve it, that this promise is given out of mercy, out of love. And that is the hesed uh, of love, lo love of hesed as described here. Okay? 
So coming to our story, I've entitled it, if you follow in the outline, How David, a rogue captain, became king of all Israel. And that's our whole story today, from chapter 2 to chapter 4. Why? Because if you remember where we started off this narrative in 2 Samuel 1, where was David? He was in a place called Ziklag. And this was a place given to him by the Philistines, Israel's enemies, because David ran away from Saul. So he was at a place called Ziklag, which was given to him by Akish, king of Gath, the Philistine king. And his men, David and his men, were even kicked out from the Philistine army in 1 Samuel 29. And this is before where we find ourselves. And after today's passage, in chapter 5, David is king over all Israel. How did that happen? As we'll see in today's story, it was not a smooth journey. It was not immediate. It didn't happen overnight. There were many unpleasant detours. It was messy. And it was very, very much like human life. So let's go into it, shall we? In chapter 2, verse 1, you can follow with your Bibles open in front of you. So we pick up where we, last week where we left off. David was at Ziglar receiving the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, and he mourned them. And what happens next? Verse 1, after this, David inquired of the Lord. Now this is important because with Saul did, David could conveniently say, oh, I should go back to Israel, isn't it? My enemy is gone. I should abandon this uh, Philistine city and I should go back to the land of Israel. It makes sense, total sense. But David doesn't do what is convenient. He first seeks the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. And it's something he does repeatedly. And whenever he does so, you see that things go well. And so too in this case. He inquires of the Lord and in essence, uh, the Lord tells him to pack up all his men, all his whole family, whatever was at Ziklag, and move to Hebron a city of much significance in the Old Testament. It was where Abraham buried Sarah, and it lies within the boundaries of Judah. And we see there in, in verse 4 that all, all the men of Judah came and they anointed David, the king over the house of Judah. Now, in between this, next what happens is that David acknowledges the loyalty of the men of Jabesh Gilead to Saul. And here the word loyalty is the word hesed, because they broke into the Philistine encampment where the, the remains of jo uh, Saul and his sons, Jonathan uh, and his brothers, were being desecrated. They went into enemy territory, stole the remains, brought it back and gave it an honorable burial. Obviously, Saul couldn't repay them. It, it was out of love. It was out of loyalty that doesn't expect repayment. And that's the man of Jabesh Gilead. And David was acknowledging their love. But this didn't sit well with Saul's house. And we'll see that Abner, Saul's general, that somehow survived the massacre at Gilboa, took Saul's son, who wasn't there at the battle, we assume, Ishbosheth, and made him king over Israel, the rest of the land. But as we will soon see, the real power behind the throne, the real kingmaker, is actually Abner. And we have a summary statement here um, that Ishbosheth reigned two years, but David reigned. Uh, ruled from Hebron for seven and a half years. So for two years, we have the settings for a civil war. And that's our next chapter in chapter three. So if you follow, I'm oh, sorry, the next verses from chapter two, uh, two, verses 12 onwards. So we have two accounts here recorded for us in the end of chapter two. The first was one of a representative battle. So the battle doesn't go well. They come, both sides come to a stalemate. And to avoid the entire armies wasting each other, waste of resources, they have representatives, 12 champions, 12 on 12, supposedly to decide what happens. But it's, it's, it's really dramatic, isn't it? It's like, you know, 
they all kill each other. It's right here. They, they stab each other. It's one step, the next step. Oh, everyone just dies at the pool. And it doesn't stop the fighting. That's the worst part, isn't it? So the fighting continues in verse 18. And next, we are introduced to Asahel. We know from 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Chronicles 11 verse 26 that Asahel was one of David's mighty men, his captain. And he had two brothers, Joab and Abishai. They've appeared before. If you remember, Abishai was the one that snuck in with David to Saul's camp. And Saul was sleeping there with a spear. He says, David, should I just... You know? And if he said no, that's Abishai. Right? He was the one that stuck in with David. And of course, Joab is David's mighty general. Somehow you have a family with three sons that are like exceptional captains. Wow. Must have been, must have been quite a family, isn't it? So we have Ab- Asahel here. And he chased Abner down. Uh, the Bible says he turned neither to the left or to the right. So people try to engage him into battle. He says no. And he just goes straight on to Abner. And Abner tries to dissuade him. Why? How can I face your brother if I kill you? He said, no, I will kill you. I want to I I fight you. Right? I want to end the battle today. So Abner, having failed, dissuading him, kills him. It's quite gruesome, right? The spear goes through him to the back and he dies. And in verse 23, remember, this is civil war. Very likely, men on both sides know each other. They're related. They're they're all from the tribe of Israel, isn't it? And in verse 23, there's there's implied here that Asahel's death was tragic for both sides, that all all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Of course, they didn't literally stood still. The battle still came on, but it's to imply that the fight had kind of gone out at this moment. And we read on that Joab and Abishai, Asahel's brothers, pursue Abner. And they pursue and they come to another stalemate. And what happens? And Abner says, what are we doing? Right? Haven't had we had enough? Shall the sword devour forever? Don't you know the end will be, will be better? How long will it be before you tell your brothers to turn from the pursuit? Your, your people from the, to turn from the pursuit of their brothers. And Joab acknowledges, we're all brothers. So let's just stop it today. So they turn and they go their separate ways. Abner goes back to Mahanaim and Joab goes back to Hebron. But still, this doesn't stop the killing. And we come now to chapter 3 the climax of the situation. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we have another summary statement that plots what happens next. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And that the house of David grew stronger is demonstrated in the next verses. Like, why is this there? It's because the, the narrator wanted to emphasize that David had sons born to him in Hebron. To have a king having sons, multiple, plural, shows that there's a security of lineage. And this will be contrasted later with the house of Saul. But there's also someone that's growing stronger in the house of Saul. But that's not Ishbosheth. It's Abner. In verse 6, Abner was making himself strong. And we know, uh, we can read from ne- what happens next, is that Ishbosheth was a weak king. He felt threatened. And he accused Abner. Why have you gone into my father's concubine? He accused Abner of... Uh, sleeping with his father's concubine. Now, I'm only explain this a bit because cult- by cultural convention, one way of legit- legitimizing one's claim to the throne is by sleeping with or marrying the wives or the concubine of the former king. So, uh, Ishbosheth was afraid that Abner would take the kingdom away from him and make himself the king, which was the wrong thing to do because Abner 
is angry. And, and he, 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 he retaliates, isn't it? Uh, he, he, he says, uh, and, he, and ironically, he does the very thing that Ishbosheth fears. He takes the kingdom away from him. But he doesn't take it for himself. Instead, he gives it to David. And in his response, there's something very interesting here, which is, um, oh wait, I haven't got there yet. Sorry, I'm skipping ahead myself. Okay? He, he, he actually gives the throne to David. And David, so there's a few thing, interesting things that happen here. David asks for Michal, his wife, back. And another thing he's explaining. Because if, you, if those of you who know Deuteronomy, isn't it illegal or doesn't the law forbid anyone to remarry his wife whom he divorced? And the answer here is that David never divorced Michal. If you read 1 Samuel 19, verses 11 to 17, David had to flee. And it was after fleeing that Saul married Michal off to another man. So David was well within his legal rights. Uh, he paid a bright price. He was not repaid or recompensated for that. He was well within his legal rights to ask for Michal back. Now, why would he do so? We're not sure. Uh, was David trying to strengthen his ties to, to the house of Saul? We're not sure. We know, obviously, that David didn't need to do so. Um, and as best we can do is guess. Okay? Um, but we move on. Abner proceeds to uh, show that he is the true power in verses 17 to 19 by conferring with the leaders of Israel and Benjamin to give the throne to David. So the fact that Abner could do so means he was the true power, isn't it? So for some time past, you have been seeking uh, David as king, he says in verse 17. Now bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, the hand of my servant David, uh, by the hand of my, this, my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, from the hand of all their enemies. So, what's going on here? Abner knows that God has promised David to be the king that will bring peace. Abner knew of God's promise to David. And it really begs the question, like, why would he install Ishbosheth in the first place? Right? That Abner, out of his misguided loyalty to Saul, went against God's wishes here. And all the carnage that we just read in chapter 2 could be put at that feet of that decision. But whether Abner only uh, chose not to believe this at first, ignored it, or only learned of it later, again, we're not sure. All we know is that Abner was uh, angry that Ishbosheth accused him of taking the power, recognized that this king is not loyal to him as much as he's loyal to them and give Israel the good king that it really deserves, which is the obvious choice, is David. And as we see, this, this coup, this transfer of power, power was meant to be bloodless. And in a sense, in verse 18, you can see that it was seeking God's promises, to fulfill God's promises in this way. Now, how does David respond? David welcomes Abner, throws a feast, and sends Abner away in peace to, to go and, and, you know, seal the deal, get the, the, the covenant of, of the rest of Israel and come back and confirm it. And here we have a bit of drama. You know, uh, Joab comes back, but Abner is gone. It's like in a, in a TV drama, you have two people who wanted to see each other in the airport, but one goes up the escalator, one goes down, but they're looking the different way, right? Yeah. But very likely, this was orchestrated by David. He knew that Joab was out for blood. And indeed, Joab is angry. He confronts David in verse 24. What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away? You know that the Abner son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, to know all that you're doing. Joab accused Abner of espionage. He doesn't want to make a deal with you. He just wants to see your defenses so they can launch an invasion. That's what he says. And in, without David's knowledge, Joab went behind his back and asked Abner to come back. 
under false pretenses, and both Joab and his brother Abishai killed him. Now, Abner killed Asahel, their brother, in battle. But this, this was murder in cold blood. And David is notably upset. And that's what we see in the next few verses, from verses 31 to 39 of chapter 3. Now, two things um, to note here. The first is that Abner's death was not David's plan at all. The narrator makes that really obvious from sending, David sending Abner away in peace, from how David responds by mourning, by fasting, by weeping, um, and by honoring Abner by burying him at Hebron, where David is king. And David's innocence is emphasized by the historian recorded for us in verse 37. All people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And by extension, Abner's death was a wrong initiative by Joab. That Joab was taking matters into his own hands. David won't give me my vengeance. I will take my own vengeance. Even if it means lying and, 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 and cold-blooded murder to get it. Even if there's no legitimate way of getting it. And David says, as much by cursing, Ab, uh, by cursing Joab, by cursing his entire house, and by saying, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And it is this sin that becomes uh, the reason for Joab's execution in 1 Kings under Solomon. So that happened. With Abner gone, what happens next? And we see in chapter 4. In the first four verses, the narrator describes the dismay in the house of Saul. First, of course, we have Ishbosheth being, being dismayed. And we're introduced to uh, three people. Two guys, Bana and Rechab, we'll visit them later, but just note, they are captains. They are trusted men within Ishbosheth's house, okay? Just note that. And the third person we're introduced to is Mephibosheth. The names in this passage are like a tongue twister, isn't it? Mephibosheth. Uh, now, Mephibosheth will, be, will play a key role in 2 Samuel later. But who is he? He's Jonathan's son. So somehow, when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death came, the nurse who was taking care of the child, uh, five-year-old Mephibosheth, panicked and fled because likely whoever killed the king is going to kill the king's heir next. And in the rush to leave, the poor child fell and became crippled. And that's Mephibosheth. And then the author's putting this here to show that there is, there's a weak king who is distraught, who cannot lead without his general, and there's a cripple. And that's it for the house of Saul. We have David strengthening his position with many sons, and we have a house of Saul that's the, the, the lone heir is a cripple. No viable king to lead the armies of Israel. And indeed, we see the downfall of Ishbosheth in the next verse. So we come back to these sons of Rimon, Rechab and Bana. What do they do? They go into Ishbosheth's house in the middle as he was taking his noonday rest. At the middle of the day, when it was too hot to work, they had a nap, the siesta. I wish this was common practice in Malaysia, isn't it? You know, post-lunch coma, right? But yeah, he was taking a nap. And verse 6, now verse 6 and verse 7 can be best understood as a, re, uh, uh, verse 6 is best understood as a summary statement. What happened? They came under false pretenses, they stabbed him, and they escaped. And verse 7 plays out how that happened. It's not just that they stabbed him. They actually went in. They, they, they struck him and beheaded him and in a very gruesome way, brought his head all the way with them, traveled through the night. So from noonday, they traveled all night, 
through the Arabah, through the desert, literally, to Hebron to seek David out. And verse 8 tells us why they did it. They came before David and said, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king on this day on Saul and his offspring. They invoke the name of the Lord. But David's not fooled, isn't he? His response, as we will read, from verse 9 to 11. David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berothite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the face of the earth? And of course, they're killed. And that ends the story. Now, some things for us to note. David's trust is in the Lord who has redeemed him out of every adversity. That he has trusted in God. He has turned to the Lord. Multiple occasions when the, when the going was tough, when the situation was hopeless, David turned to the Lord and the Lord saved him. And we, we have many Psalms in our, in our book of Psalms to prove that. When he escaped to Gath, when he was in the cave, when he was running from here, he, and he was saved, he penned the Psalm. Next, we should note that Ishbosheth is described as a, a righteous man. And not just because he was killed without cause, that means he was innocent in the cause of his death. But note, uh, more importantly, is the omission that Ishbosheth is not the Lord's anointed. He was appointed by man, he was appointed by Abner, not by God. And last but not least, is how Rechab and Bana like the Amalekite of last chapter, seriously miscalculated what mattered to David, of David's values and his perspective. And by extension, they misunderstood what matters to God. So in the end, they were killed and hung up as an example, but Ishbosheth was buried with Abner in Hebron. And like I said, from this point in the story, there's nothing stopping David from becoming king over all Israel and bringing about the peace that God has promised to save his people, Israel, from the hands of the Philistines and from the hands of all his enemies. But that will be next week. So what can we learn from this? Three things. First is the question of living by faith or living by force. We have examples of people living by force. We have Abner, out of his misguided sense, of, of what was important, its loyalty to House of Saul, installing Ishbosheth as king, even though that was not God's will. And the end result was civil war that ended up with them being destroyed anyway. We have Joab killing Abner, taking matters into his own hands, deciding vengeance for his own self, doing what was convenient in a sense, by destroying an enemy and being mistaken. We have Rechab and Bana out of their ambition and drive, thinking that it will be convenient, thinking that David will be grateful for removing his enemy, but not realizing that David was trusting in God. Because that's a contrast, isn't it? Living by faith. That David knew of God's chesed. That God who has promised, uh, that God who has anointed him in secret, who has promised to be with him, who has promised to see him through, Again and again, in, in, in David's Psalms, he appeals, God, because of your steadfast love, don't destroy me. And we see David experience 
and personally knew what it means to trust God in moments of desperation. And how has Hesed been demonstrated in this story? We've noted the Jabesh Gileads to Saul. Saul was dead, he couldn't repay them, but yet they risked their own lives to, out of gratitude, out of that relationship to Saul. We see the Hesed also described as Abner's Hesed to the house of Saul, as misguided as it was. And Abner not wanting the power for himself, even though he was the influence and the power behind the throne, isn't it? And last but not least, we see David's Hesed to both Abner and Ishbosheth, people who were supposed to be his enemies, but yet he uh, buried them in honor in Hebron. And last but not least, we see God. How have we seen God's Hesed demonstrated? We have seen how God was faithful to his promises to David, that even though it took David a few years, it took him a while, it was messy, but God is faithful and he still saw David through. But there's an even greater demonstration of God's has said in the pages of the Bible, that God made an earlier promise to the first human, Adam, that he would save humanity from themselves, from sin, that all of humanity is stuck in this loop of deciding things by our own perspective, thinking what is good, within our own limitations and acting accordingly, but only ending up in disaster. That's all of us, isn't it? And being separated from God by sin, we all end up in hell. And God's promise to save humanity was fulfilled. He made good on that promise by sending Jesus in. It took him much longer to fulfill that promise, but eventually he did. When Jesus, God the Son, became man to die in our place, to take our sin, to take our shame, to bear the full weight of our separation that he was abandoned by God on the cross so that we would never be condemned, so that we in him would never be ashamed and never be separated or abandoned by God. That in his resurrection, we are assured of his promise that God is our loving father who keeps his promises to us. And the main takeaway for us is that we should be living life trusting in God's hesed instead of trusting our own limited human perspective. So I ask, what could you be going through today that will require you to trust God and do the right thing, even though it's inconvenient, even though it'll be much harder, even though it will cost you to do the right thing? Where in life could you perhaps benefit from having the right perspective? That life on this earth is not final. That we're meant for so much more. That this earth and this life is not it is not our home. So going back to that board game I talked about, it's like you're playing the game, you're in the game, the game maybe lasts hours, and, and you're, you're sucked in, and for the thrill of the game, you cause real hurt, cause real betrayal, you lose real friendships for the sake of the game. You win the game, sure, but was it worth it when the game ends and you face those people in the real world? Brothers and sisters, this life is not all that there is. There is a real existence that awaits us after death. And those uh, who, who trust in God will live life in a very different way than those who can only see all that there is in this life. And I pray for all of us here, all of our listening, that we will know and live in the reality that this world is created by a God who is Hesed. And that to live by our own perspective is disaster. And in his goodness, he's made a way for us to come to him. So let us be doing so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how 
in how you are faithful to all your promises, how you have revealed yourself in your word, how your steadfast love never changes, how your mercies are new every morning, and that we are called to turn away, to just turn to you and, and, and trust that you know what is best. Where we are lacking in faith, where we are lost and directionless, help us, O oh Lord. Give us the clarity to see what really matters, what is real and what is not. And we can only do so with your help. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.